On this episode of Bright Future, I discuss a recent letter from Secretary Yellen that states the United States will default on June 1st, two weeks from now. I also discuss exactly what might happen and what you can do to prepare for if we do end up defaulting. This is a weekly political podcast that follows current events and looks to how we may do better so that there may be a brighter future. I'm your host, Samuel Adams, but please call me Sam, and without further ado, let's begin this week's episode, which I have titled, Brace for Impact. Before I begin, I just wanted to talk about how I record these episodes, what I do with these episodes. So, in the past, what I would do is, if you wanted to join me and discuss these topics live while I'm recording them, you absolutely can. Linked in the description is a Discord server, and if you join that Discord server, there is a category in that server called Bright Future, specifically for this podcast. And in that section, I used to have just a regular old voice channel where I would just have everyone else sit and wait while I'm reading the script off, the prepared script of all of the ideas and everything that I've come up with already before. And then once I finished the script, you know, my, like, essay section, I would open it up for everyone else to discuss with. I have now changed that from being a regular voice channel to instead a stage channel. I've been trying to do this for a while. Discord finally gave me the ability to do it again. So what I'm able to do is more easily manage that from my end here. So if more people are interested in joining and discussing these topics, absolutely do that in our a Discord server linked in the description. Let's begin our episode now. For the past few episodes, it's been rather short because not much is happening over in Washington. Our government is currently divided with Republicans in control of the House and Democrats in control of the Senate and the presidency, which means that most anything that one side tries to do, the other side's going to quash. However, there has finally been some developments with that debt ceiling crisis, so How about a longer episode this week? I have talked about the debt ceiling before in previous episodes further back, and in those episodes, I quoted a study by Wells Fargo, which stated that the United States would default sometime between July and September. According to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, that date has moved up. We will now default on June 1st. For this episode, I will talk about the Limit Save Grow Act of 2023 and the 14th Amendment as possible solutions for this crisis. I will also go more into detail about how Secretary Yellen's letter and uh, what exactly will happen if we actually default. And lastly, I'll discuss how you and I could and should prepare for the worse. You may have heard from Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre and President Biden that the Limit Save Grow Act will cut large portions of the federal budget down by substantial amounts. Instead of just taking their word for it like I did in previous episodes, I sat down and I read the act over the weekend. If you have a disability that prevents you from working but is considered to be temporary, you may be eligible for Social Security benefits. However, because your disability is only a temporary thing, the Social Security Administration requires you to be reevaluated, usually between every three years and every seven years, depending on your type of disability, in order to keep receiving benefits. The Social Security Administration stated that it cost them 
two and a half billion dollars to do this each year for everyone who is disabled. The Limit Save Grow Act establishes a $1.6 billion budget for this purpose, increasing by 7% each year. That's a 36% cut, but doesn't cut the actual benefits themselves. That's prohibited by the Contract with America Advancement Act of 1996. Instead, the Limit Save Grow Act is cutting the SSA's funding on re-evaluating people to see if they are eligible to continue receiving benefits. There's a lot more details about how this might actually affect you if you receive disability benefits linked in the description, but unfortunately, the Social Security Administration does not actually say on their website what happens if they can no longer afford to review your case due to a budget cut. According to a study done by the Senate on Healthcare Reform, healthcare fraud and abuse control costs the federal government $60 billion per year. The Limit Save Grow Act of 2023 establishes a budget of $604 million per year for healthcare fraud, increasing by about 7% each year for the next 10 years. That's a 99% cut. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the Disaster Relief Fund costs the federal government $469 billion per year between the years of 1992 and 2021, adjusted for inflation. The Limit Save Grow Act instead gives the Disaster Relief Fund $265 billion for 2024, and increases that by about 2% each year through the year 2033. If anything, FEMA needs more money to prepare for and recover from natural disasters. They definitely do not need a 44% budget cut. Also, according to the Congressional Budget Office, wildfire suppression, on its own, costs an average of $2.5 billion per year between 2016 and 2020. The Limit Save Grow Act establishes a budget of $2.9 billion for the year 2028. The inflation rate over the last 10 years has averaged about 1.3%. Assuming that average rate, which is probably generously low, and that the budget for wildfire suppression will stay the same without climate change demanding more for wildfire control, the budget for 2028 should be $2.8 billion. To match inflation, so the Limit Save Grow Act establishes a 4% budget increase here. These are just the budget markers for Division A of the Act. In addition to these cuts, Division B recalls all unobligated coronavirus funds, which is actually kind of risky because some of those unobligated funds may actually still be promised to people but simply not sent out yet or collected yet due to bureaucratic hurdles. The next part of the Limit Save Grow Act requires a little bit of background. Remember the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022? In my previous episode on the subject, I attempted to read it, and I came to some conclusions. I saw major issues and loopholes with it. I still think that those loopholes need to be closed and that there are more glaring issues that need to be resolved, but the more I've researched about it, there are several sections that I can actually agree with. For example, Section 50131 of the Inflation Reduction Act 
allocates $1 billion in grants for state and local governments to update their government buildings for compliance with new energy codes. Section 504, oh gosh, these sections are way too long and don't have any proper shortened names. Section 50144 and Section 60114 established a $5 billion grant for projects that reduce air pollution. Section 50224 provides the National Park Service $190 million for maintenance of our national parks that have gone neglected for some time. Section 60501 allocates about $1.9 billion to the Federal Highway Administration to use for repairing and expanding neighborhood roads. And these are some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act that I can actually agree with. So, of course, Section 202 of the Limit Save Grow Act repeals all of these sections. Section 211 of the Limit Save Grow Act nullifies Biden's previous executive order for student loan forgiveness and also limits the president's authority so he or any future president can never do it again. Section 222 of the Limit Save Grow Act halves the amount of green credits provided to power companies that use renewable energy sources. Previously, in order to uh, receive these credits, the power company needed to use at least 6%. The power company produces a certain amount of energy, and at least 6% of that energy needs to come from green sources in order to be eligible to receive these green credits. Under the Limit Save Grow Act, that limit would be moved to 30%. In addition, Section 225 repeals all credits given to nuclear power plants and also prohibits the green credits from being given to any green energy source that was built after the year 2022. Title IV of the Limit Save Grow Act is titled Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection. I've talked about how this title is straight up lying to you in previous episodes. The section recalls funding sent to the IRS, which forces the IRS to audit lower-income people and smaller businesses. It doesn't protect them from audits, forces them to be audited. This also prevents the IRS from having the funding and power to audit larger businesses. In this entire Limit Save Grow Act, there is only one section that I can actually 100% agree with. The Limit Save Grow Act would temporarily suspend the debt limit through March 31st of, 2023, of 2024 or until the national debt increases by $1.5 trillion, whichever comes first. If this was the only thing in this bill, it would buy us some time to come to a more reasonable solution. Apart from the many subjective issues I have with the Limit Save Grow Act of 2023, there is another major issue with it from an objective standpoint. It hasn't gotten very far through the lawmaking process yet. In order to become a law, a bill needs to start in either the House of Representatives or the Senate of the Congress. Then it needs a majority vote from either the House or the Senate before moving to the opposite side, and then receives a majority vote again in order to be sent off to the president and signed into law. So far, the Limit Save Grow Act has only passed the House of Representatives, and that was back on April 26th. It's been sent to the Senate, who has barely touched it. It's been read twice, and a committee on the budget held a hearing on May 4th, and there has been no action since in the past two weeks. 
While this act is technically a possibility to resolve the debt ceiling crisis, Biden has also vowed that if it passed the Senate, he would veto the bill. So instead, we'll probably have to find another option. Historian Eric Thorner wrote in the New York Times claiming that President Biden has the ability to end the crisis all on his own without needing any kind of law or input from Congress. By using the 14th Amendment, Section 4, which reads, quote, The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for the payment of pensions, for bounties, and services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. Unfortunately, unlike other parts of the Constitution, this section is rather vague. It doesn't specifically say who has what power to make what changes to what things to ensure the validity of the national debt. This amendment was added back in 1868 to confirm that no one would pay, neither the federal government, the states, or any other government from other countries, would pay for the loss of slaves or debts incurred by the Confederacy after the Civil War. However, several previous debt ceiling crises have raised several questions on what exactly the president's authority under Section 4 is. Some claim that under Section 4, the mere existence of a debt ceiling is unconstitutional and void if it interferes with the duty of the government to pay interest on bonds or make payments on government benefits. It is even argued that Section 4 gives the president total authority to raise or even outright ignore the debt ceiling. And legal analyst Jeffrey Rosen argued that if challenged, the Supreme Court would rule in favor of expanded executive power, or simply dismiss the case entirely for lack of standing. However, Professor Erwin Sherminsky of Irvine School of Law argues that not even in a, quote, dire financial emergency could the president do any of these things. It has also been opined that the president has no power under the 14th Amendment, and like Congress, the president would be obliged to prioritize all incoming revenues to the government to pay off the debt and stay below the ceiling, and that all other spending would have to be stopped immediately. So based on these opinions from various lawyers and professors of law, the actual meaning of 14th Amendment Section 4 is vague and unclear. Great. In theory, President Biden could use this section to resolve the crisis by either raising the ceiling even on a temporary basis, or by simply removing the ceiling altogether. But the question of, does he actually have the power to do this, has no clear answer. This action would likely solve the short-term problem because Section 4 is so vague, but this would instead redirect the whole crisis to the Supreme Court, who then has to make a very tough decision. Is the debt ceiling, they'd have to make a very tough decision, can the president do this and under what circumstances, or is the debt ceiling valid under the Constitution? If the Supreme Court ends up ruling that the ceiling is in fact valid, we would probably instantly default, because it takes time for a court to see a case and issue a ruling, and during that same time, we would still be accruing national debt, and probably pass the debt ceiling in that time. But if the Supreme Court rules that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional, then the government could just start passing money out like candy to everyone, and accrue as much debt as they want, which could cause runaway inflation. I wish this was an easy, simple-to-fix problem like the Biden administration claims. Just raise the debt ceiling. But the point of a debt ceiling is like a credit limit on a credit card. 
It prevents you from spending more than you can afford. If you can just raise it whenever you like, then what's the point? While we can raise it, we should probably only do so in dire circumstances, and if we end up having to do it, we should definitely establish a plan to prevent us from reaching it again, or prevent us from going up to it again. Hey, wait a minute, I talked about that before. The Problem Solvers Caucus from the House of Representatives established that same plan, a blueprint, a framework, for a resolution to this debt ceiling crisis about how they would temporarily raise it and then establish a committee to focus on how we would prevent that from happening again. But they never fully drafted a bill, and I hope they do soon, because their framework established a better plan than these other two options. But the worst part about this whole crisis is that we have no definitive time limit. We aren't sure exactly when we're going to hit that debt ceiling. I previously used a Wells Fargo paper as a source to try and give an approximate estimation, sometime between July and September, but a better source turned up, Treasury Secretary Yellen, who manages the Treasury Department. If we get close to or hit our debt ceiling, she will be the first to know. In order to give us a more specific time frame, Yellen wrote a letter to Speaker McCarthy and a few other congresspeople. Here it is, verbatim. Dear Mr. Speaker, I am writing to follow up on my previous letters regarding the debt limit and to provide additional information regarding the Treasury Department's ability to continue to finance the operations of the federal government. In my January 13 letter, I noted that it was unlikely that cash and extraordinary measures would be exhausted before early June. After reviewing recent federal tax receipts, our best estimate is that we will be unable to continue to satisfy all of the government's obligations by early June, potentially as early as June 1st, if Congress does not raise or suspend the debt limit before that time. This estimate is based on currently available data, as federal, federal receipts and outlays are inherently variable and that the actual date that the Treasury exhausts extraordinary measures could be a number of weeks later than these estimates. It is impossible to predict with certainty the exact date when the Treasury will be unable to pay the government's bills, and I will continue to update Congress in the coming weeks as more information becomes available. Given the current projections, it is imperative that Congress act as soon as possible, to increase or suspend the debt limit in a way that provides a longer-term certainty that the government will continue to make its payments. Additionally, the Treasury is suspending the issuance of state and local government series Treasury securities. SLGS are special-purpose Treasury securities issued to states and municipalities in order to help them comply with certain tax rules. When Treasury issues SLGS, they count against the debt limit. Treasury will take this action to manage the risks associated with the debt limit, but it is not without cost, as it will deprive state and local governments of an important tool to manage their finances. We have learned from past debt limit impasses that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm to business and consumer confidence, raise short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers, and negatively impact the credit rating of the United States. If Congress fails to increase the debt limit, it would cause severe hardship to American families, 
harm our global leadership position and raise questions about our ability to defend our national security interests. I respectfully urge Congress to protect the full faith and credit of the United States by acting as soon as possible. Sincerely, Janet L. Yellen. So if we default, which will happen an estimated two weeks from the day this episode is published, what will happen? The government has never defaulted on its debt before. The most recent close call was in 2011, and this hasn't happened since. Based on my research for my tug-of-war episode, and with a little Google, with a little help from Google's version of ChatGPT, Bard, here is what would happen if this issue isn't resolved in two weeks, without sounding like I just ripped this section from the previous episode's script. Here are some specific impacts of a government default. A decline in the value of currency. When a government defaults, it loses credibility. This can lead to a decline in the value of currency as investors lose confidence in the government's ability to repay its debts. This can also make it more expensive to import goods and services and lead to inflation. When a government defaults, it also signals to investors that it is a risky borrower. This can lead to an increase in interest rates as investors demand a higher risk premium to lend money to the government. It also signals to investors that the economy is unstable, which will lead to a decrease in investment, as businesses will become more cautious about making new investments, which can also cause a decrease in economic growth. While the economy is weak, businesses are less likely to hire new workers, which will lead to a rise in unemployment, which can have a number of negative consequences, including a decrease in customer spending and, an in and a decrease in tax revenue. Lastly, this can cause a loss of confidence in the government, which can make it more difficult for the government to borrow money in the future, more difficult to finance government programs, and lastly, a loss of confidence in government can lead to political instability. So, that's not good. Now, obviously, if a government defaults in other places throughout the world, there have been cases in which governments are regularly overthrown. I don't think that's going to happen to our government, but, well, I hope it doesn't happen. I work for a customer service company that works for a bank that works for Social Security. It's not complicated, I swear. My job is to directly work with people who receive these government benefits. Will those benefits be affected and will I have to deal with a lot of angry customers as a result? According to ABC News and that 1996 law I mentioned earlier, payments to 67 million beneficiaries could be halted. However, that 1996 law does provide an escape hatch. A trust fund was established to keep the benefits going, at least for a little while, until either the debt limit is raised or the trust runs dry. Whichever comes first. Unfortunately, there isn't much you or I can do as an individual to directly prepare for the default. There are steps you can take to protect your finances, but there are limits as to how effective they may be. It's possible that you may end up losing your job or get hit with a pay cut. The unemployment rate is expected to increase by several percentage points, and employers are less likely to hire people during a default. If this happens, an emergency fund to fall back on is an absolute must so you can keep covering rent and bills until everything blows over. In addition, lower your debt as much as possible. The less you have, 
less vulnerable you will be if your income gets cut. In addition, tangible assets can be beneficial to provide you a fallback if the value of the dollar plummets, things like land, gold, or a car. Personally, I've also built up a small stock of non-perishable foods, which isn't a massive step, but that means that in the event of I'm not able to afford groceries for a small period of time, I will still be able to eat. My apartment complex also offers a bi-weekly rent option that I can switch to at any time instead of a monthly rent payment, so that would make things easier as well. Lastly, I recommend staying as informed about the situation as possible. As we get closer to a default, more details about how it impacts us will come to light. By paying attention to the situation, you will be better prepared to deal with the events as they unfold. In conclusion, I urge the Problem Solvers Caucus to fully draft their bill so I can review it, and so that it can pass into law. Surely, it's better than the other proposals I've covered. However, I'm growing increasingly concerned that we are going to end up defaulting due to this massive stalemate, and the time frame established by Secretary Yellen means that our time to prepare has become very limited. I urge our government to do everything possible to avoid a default and steer us back towards a brighter future. Currently, I'm the only one in the uh, stage channel of the Discord server today, so I guess uh, no one else would like to join me. But if you would like to join me in these episodes whenever I record them, feel free to join our Discord server, which is linked in the description. Check the description for more information, including the many resources I used to build this episode, and all of the places where you can find my podcast. All of these episodes are recorded live at every Monday, 7 p.m. Central. Now, if you would like to support the show or spread the word, you can join our Discord server, or I also have a merch store full of items showcasing both the show's logo and logos for individual episodes. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Bright Future. These episodes are released every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, so I will see you back here next week.